a good 95% of it is young teenage girls. They have signs throughout the audience. Each time the arc lights pick up a sign, the audience goes practically berserk. They say, welcome to the Beatles. They're holding up British flags around the auditorium here too, which sets the crowd off. Anyone approaching the stage with a blue suit or that doesn't have a uniform on sets the crowd into a complete uproar. Listen to this crowd roar! They haven't even started to sing! The kids are throwing money! They're throwing gifts! This sound must be able to be heard miles away! It's wild! This place is going out of its head! You have never heard anything like this in your life! They're playing, I want to hold your hand! But you probably can't hear it! I'm Richard Buskin. I'm Eric Taros. I'm Chuck Dunderson.
That was a medley from the 5th of September 1964 at the International Amphitheatre in Chicago. Ah, uh, yes. So we have with us Chuck Gunderson, the author of Some Fun Tonight, the backstage story of how the Beatles rocked America, the historic tours of 1964 to 1966. It's in two volumes. Uh, the first one has a foreword by Bob Eubanks. The second one, a foreword by Barry Tashian with an introduction by Larry Kane. And I've got to say, I absolutely love these books. Oh, thanks so much. I'm not sure you will ever see books printed quite to that level again. No expense was spared. They're beautifully bound. The slipcase is nice. It's full uh, color. Oh, yeah. It's, it's actually those, uh, even your black and whites look like quadratones to me. I think they, they're not just a half tone, are, are they? Yeah, well, I, uh, I, you know, first of all, I really thank you for your comments. And, uh, you know, I did this book as kind of one for the ages. I mean, if you're going to do, do this, let's do it right. And so no one else has to create um, a history of the tours. The project was uh, originally intended to be one volume. And when I would come down to the design meetings to meet with them, we would lay out the pages and, and I'd look at them and I'd say, well, wait a minute, what about, you know, this photograph that I found or this piece of memorabilia or this part of the story? And, and uh, Brad Zucroft, who uh, was, was Omnivorous Press, Omnivorous Media said, Chuck, you're not going to be able to fit it in one book. And I said, well, look, this is my project. This is something I've always wanted to do. So we're going to do two volumes. So that then freed up a bunch of space for them to get really creative on the project and add everything that I wanted to add. So, so tell us about the project itself. As you said, it was something you really wanted to do. Um, just give us a bit of your background as a Beatle fan and an aficionado and how this project took shape and what you wanted to achieve with it. Okay, so I've been a Beatles fan most of my life. Luckily, I had older brothers and sisters that that spun the the records from the 1960s, and of course, it you know got into my system, and uh, just always loved you know the Beatles and their music. And so I kind of tried to read everything I could. I'm not a first generation fan. I was born in 1962. Um, so look, I was about eight or nine when they broke up. So my first recollection of buying Beatle records were the red and blue albums. It was the Beatles live at the Hollywood bowl, uh, that type of thing when I could actually go out and afford records. But I do remember my brothers and spin, uh, sisters spinning the, the, the 45s on the turntable, of course. And, um, so anyways, I started going to Beatle Fest and I think my first one was 1979 at the LA Bonaventure. And uh, back then, all I could really afford were bumper stickers and little, you know, tchotchkes and things like that. And as right. I really started getting more passionate about the Beatles and their, their music and their history, and then I was introduced to Bruce Spizer, who was writing these amazing books. So every time I'd see him at Beatlefest, I'd say, Bruce, you really need to write a book on the Beatles tours. No one's really done it. And he goes, Chuck, I'm too busy. I've got you know, two or other, three other books I'm writing right now. And so I kept bothering him. It would be like two or three years I kept bothering him to do this. And he just said he didn't have time. And then there was another group of individuals that was going to write one, although they had quite a different vision for the project. And so I was talking to them. I was helping them. I was consulting with them. And then they just abandoned the project, just completely abandoned it. So that kind of 
made me think and, and, and think to myself and saying to myself, like, look, Chuck, you know, you have a master's in history degree. You know how to research. You know how to do all You know how to write. You know how to do all this stuff. Why don't you just do it yourself? So I kind of got Bruce's blessing. I asked him to be a mentor to me and uh, said I'm going to do this, and, and I started doing it. And uh, took about eight years of work, <laughs> but I finally accomplished what I, what I really set out to do, and I'm really proud of the work that I put out. And uh, so the way you approached it was basically for over the course of two volumes, and these are large format books, you know, as you said, beautifully produced. And every uh, city, really you've gone city by city for each tour, haven't you, with several pages dedicated to each city? Exactly. But I did not do the first tour because Bruce Pizer wrote that amazing book, I had, The Beatles Are Coming. So I didn't really need to revisit the first visit in February. So I wanted to... Right, which, which wasn't a tour anyway. Exactly, yeah. It was yeah, just... they call it the first tour, though, don't they? Kind it of. Is, it is yeah. kind of accepted as the first tour. Something. Is it? Yeah. Really? Yeah, I've heard it as visit. I've heard it as tour. But, you know, it really wasn't a bona fide, you know, tour no. where you're going from city to city to city. And so I decided to start it in San Francisco on August 19th, 1964. That's, that's where I started and um, kind of went through there. And I realized that, gee, the first tour, I mean, there's all those dates, you know, that's going to be one volume in itself. And then if you add up the next two tours in 65 and 66, you have about the same amount of shows. So I thought, okay, this is perfect. First volume is going to be 1964. Second volume is going to be 1965 and 1966. So, yes, every city they played in North America during those three years. What have you got to say? Great, by Chicago. Hello. How do you like the greeting? Very nice. Very nice. They were behaved, weren't they? They were marvelous. Tell us about Chicago 64. When the Beatles played in North America, obviously they're going to hit the three major cities in America at that time, which was New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles. There's no way they're going to do a tour without hitting one of those cities. And all three years they, they hit those cities, New York, Chicago, and L.A. So when they hit Chicago in 1964, it was actually the 13th stop on the tour. It was in between a show they had just performed in Milwaukee the previous night, and then they yeah. were going to fly out of Chicago the next day and fly to Detroit, and they had to do two shows in Detroit. So by the time they got to Chicago, believe it or not, they had already performed, this tour started August 19th, they had already performed 15 concerts in 12 cities in just 17 days. Wow. <laughs> which is pretty amazing. So they were pretty, uh, you know, as you know, in Milwaukee, uh, John didn't show up for the press conference. He had a sore, nursing a sore throat. A um, couple of stops, they had doctors visiting just because of, you know, f all the flying around and performing and press conferences and, and all that. You know, they were young kids, but, you know, it takes a toll on you doing all of that. They also didn't have the kind of crews that people tour with today. Absolutely not. I mean, it was basically Neil and Mal and a couple other support staff that came with Brian to help out on this tour. I mean, it's absolutely nothing like it is today where, you know, stars are pampered and, you know, they get everything they want in their dressing room. And the, the, per the performance contract, and especially the writer, was very, very basic. Uh, all they really wanted and demanded was uh, clean towels, 
uh, portable TV set, four cots where they could lay down, and basically two cases of cold soda. That was what was noted in the performance contract and, and the rider. And you can see the riders in my book. I printed them, and I also printed them large scale so you could read it. You don't have to get a magnifying glass out to read them. Right. And you can see everything yeah. that the Beatles wanted during that. Um, also, you know, so they're, they're, they're just performing this, this amazing feat where they're just, you know, they're in Las Vegas one day, then they're flying up to Seattle, Vancouver, back down to L.A., over to Cincinnati, you know, to New York, over to... Um, you know, Chicago and things like that. And I sometimes I almost think that Brian Epstein just completely under, underestimated the size of the United States. I mean, the Beatles obviously toured, you know, Great Britain. They could just do it in a car and going up and down the Great Britain. But, you know, uh, the United States, North America, it's a huge, vast expanse of land. And so you had to do quite a bit to uh, get around. Um, for the Chicago concert, there was a promoter by the name of Franklin. Now, his, his last name is either pronounced Fried or Freed. It's, it's spelled F-R-I-E-D. But he had a company called Triangle uh, Theater Productions. He had a partner by the name of Dick Gasson. And as a matter of fact, Franklin uh, and Dick actually share honors with um, Harold Ballard of um, Toronto in terms of staging the most Beatles concerts in North America. So each of them staged six concerts apiece. Franklin Fried and, and Dick Gasson were the largest promoters in the Chicagoland area, Triangle Theatre Productions. So General Artists Corporation, which was the company in New York that basically partnered with Brian Epstein to bring the Beatles over to North America went out and basically got the most popular promoters out in the United States to, to sponsor the Beatles. So they jumped on it. They paid the Beatles $20,000 and 60% of the, 60% of the gate for the, for the show. And, you know, $20,000 doesn't seem like a lot of money uh, now, but $20,000 back in 1964 when, Stars of the day like Frank Sinatra, Judy Garland, Liza Minnelli, they were making about ten to fifteen thousand dollars a night, and wow. and actually Dick got a pretty good deal on it because twenty thousand other promoters were paying up to thirty to forty thousand uh, dollars to get the Beatles to play one show, and as a matter of fact, in Jacksonville, they were offered fifty thousand dollars flat, which was a which was an amazing amount of money and. You wonder, like, well, how did the Beatles get this type of money? Okay, they had a successful, you know, showing in February. You know, it obviously drew a huge amount of excitement and things like that. But how are they able to come back and almost double the amount of what America's biggest stars were getting at the time? And that credit goes to Brian. Brian told yeah. Tony Barrow, he said, when, when, when the Beatles come back to America, I'm going to ask for double what the American stars are getting. And he was right. He got it. So it was, yeah. it was really a great, great thing for them. Well, they were riding a wave, too. When you think about it, the records, you know, by, by the time they left uh, at the end of February in April, they had, you know, what, five records in the top ten or the top five slots, whatever that was. And, you know, the movie came out, uh, you know, all of that. So, so it's not like... 
And of course, in the Ed Sullivan show, a lot of us forget, um, the shows would get rerun. You know, the Beatles shows weren't just on that one time. You know, Ed would slip in a Beatles song here every once in a while. Hey, well, we got the Beatles for the youngsters. And, you know, so they were never really out of your consciousness, I'm sure. I do have to ask you before I forget, though. So I know that Toronto uh, is the city in North America that had the most Beatles concerts, uh, you know, bar none. And they were all in the same building at Maple Leaf Garden. Did you say that the Chicago guys also did six? I can think of five Chicago concerts, but what would the sixth? Did they do uh, Minneapolis or something? That or? would be the Milwaukee show the night before. Oh, they did the Milwaukee one. Yeah, oh, so so okay, Frank yeah. so Franklin Fried and Dick Gasson teamed up with a guy by the name of Nick Topping, and they did the Milwaukee show together. And that was the famous show where where um, Triangle Theater Productions uh, produced the program for the show. And you know how it was kind of like a special program. It wasn't the regular North American generic program that was sold at every show. They also produced a special program. And when you opened it up, it had the pictures of the four Beatles' heads. Well, for the Milwaukee show, they had switched the heads or the names for George and John. And so it's kind of a collector's kind of a collector's little kind of neat thing to get that Milwaukee program. So they made darn sure when they came to Chicago that next night that they got the heads and the names correct. Uh, gentlemen, we have uh, Ringo Starr, John Lennon, George Harrison in the room. Uh, John, there's been uh, somewhat of a dispute yesterday. It started when we learned that uh, Chicago officials had rescinded. Pardon? Chicago officials had rescinded. Uh, a plan uh, to have uh, the Beatles drive in front of the fans, or at least acknowledge the fans, on their visit here. And in a lot of the uh, newspapers around the country, there's been headlines like, Beatles dodge their fans, and uh, really, uh, there's, a, there's another story behind it, isn't there? Well, it's usually somebody comes up and says, the police chief or so-and-so won't let you go, jump in here, and they drag us off before we even, sometimes we don't even know fans are there at airports, because they drag us off so quickly. You know, there's no time at all when we say, let's not go over there and wave. We're always prevented one way or another. Even when they allow us to wave, they give us about half a second. They just sort of shove us in and drag us out. That's it. There are times when these security me uh, measures are needed, aren't there? Yeah, but usually they go, they go overboard, you know, because I don't know. They, probably because they, they must be new to it or something. A lot of people seem to get overexcited. Well, the main point you want to bring out, in other words, is that, like many people might think from reading the headlines and not looking behind the headlines, that it's not the Beatles' fault. It's not that you don't want to go out and see the people. Is this right? That's right, yeah. In Australia, we, we must have seen a million, million people there because they let us go. You know, there was still good security and everybody was happy, everybody was shouting, but we still saw everybody everywhere we went. Nobody got hurt, and there was just as many people. You think this might be an indication of over-security uh, on the part of fear, let's say, possibly? Well, the police, or whoever it is, are probably worried, you know, but they should think about the kids as well, you know. John, uh, thank you very much. I, th I think you've explained it. Uh, one I think you did be better. Derek? Derek, do you have something to say? Derek Taylor, the Beatles press officer on this tour. I've just read one thing, uh, Larry, in the Chicago Tribune. If... Thomas Fitzpatrick, the writer, has quoted Colonel Jack Riley, the mayor's assistant, correctly. This is what Riley is quoted as saying, that our uh, announcement about our arrival here was, quote, 
the cheapest publicity stunt in the history of the United States. There is no purpose served in arousing, uh, announcing their arrival point. Colonel Jack Riley said to me yesterday, you, Mr. Taylor, need publicity like I need a hole in the head. I don't believe you did this for publicity. Well, and anyone who thinks we did needs a hole in the head. Uh, in fact, uh, if many of the listeners can know, and I can attest to this as, as, as well as uh, some uh, 38 other people who are traveling with the Beatles, the Axe and the press, uh, the Beatles uh, uh, have asked that no one get hurt at these things, and uh, the Beatles are very concerned. There's no doubt about it. Uh, they don't want anybody hurt. And this business of, um, let's say, the press and public officials and maybe some radio stations doing this uh, is very deceptive. And this is the reason for this discussion. It's very deceptive. But Derek? There's just one other thing I'd like to say, too, since the Beatles would never say it. Their entire lives, apart from when they sleep, and some of their sleeping time is begrudged them, their entire lives are dedicated to the fans. And any time we announce our arrival, it's so that the maximum number of fans can see them. If ever we're told not to see our fans, we complain. There's one other thing, you know, like in Atlantic City and in New York, uh, there were thousands who stood outside the hotel, and they were disappointed because the Beatles couldn't come out to wave. And why didn't they wave? Well, it wasn't that the Beatles didn't want to wave. I'm sure they did, and they told me they have. But it's because the police wouldn't let them. The public officials wouldn't let them. And some of these youngsters, some of these fans, young and old, have been waiting, waiting for over uh, 24 hours, in New York especially. Gentlemen, uh, thank you very much uh, for this explanation of uh, the situation, the current situation again. Okay, man. Thanks a lot, Larry. Did a great job there. So as you said, on, on the 64 tour, you know, nothing actually prepared the group for the type of projectile they would face in Chicago. Tell us about that. Yeah, so the Beatles played at the old uh, International Amphitheater. It was uh, kind of down on the south end of town, down kind of by the meatpacking district. The building's no yep. longer there. It was raised. And uh, the International Amphitheater has some great history behind it. I mean, uh, Elvis debuted his gold LeMay suit there. Uh, UFO, remember that band from the 70s? They, they did their uh, live uh, album from that. It was recorded there at the International Amphitheater. The Chicago Bulls debuted uh, their basketball team there. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of great things there. So when the Beatles got there, um, obviously that was probably the most appropriate place for them to play in the Chicagoland area. Uh, you know, a venue that could hold about between 10 and 15,000 people. That's kind of what Brian was aiming at. He was offered yeah. larger venues. He was, um, you know, offered Shea Stadium in 1964. A lot of people don't realize that, but on the documents that I produced in the book, you'll see that, where he was offered, you know, Tiger Stadium, Shea Stadium, uh, the L.A. Coliseum. These are venues that hold over 50,000 people. And to Brian's credit, he turned those venues down. He felt that he didn't want to have venues where maybe 10,000 people came to a 50,000-seat venue. He'd rather have a venue that was 10 to 15,000 seats where he could for sure fill them. And so the International Amphitheater was a perfect site for that. Obviously, they changed the next year and went to uh, White Sox Park. 
But uh, but then came back, didn't they? In '66, yeah. they came back to the amphitheater. Yeah, the final tour, they they did two shows there at the amphitheater to, to close out. But um, you know, to get back to your question about projectiles, <laughs> every Beatles concert, <laughs> I mean, there were interesting things thrown on stage, and of the photographs that I found, there were some several that I got were from kind of the bottom of the stage looking up towards them, so you could see kind of all this debris on the stage. And there's all kind of just really interesting things. There's, you know, there's obviously spent flash bulbs. I mean, there's obviously no digital cameras back then. And you had brought your brownie camera with you and, you know, the little flash bulb would, you would have to take out and, you know, obviously dispose of it. So why not just throw it at them? Um, you know, so there was lots of <laughs> Wait a minute, wait a minute. I can't let that go by. Why not just throw it at them? Uh, you know, Lennon, time and time again on these interviews will say, you know, they keep throwing these little rocks. <laughs> you know, you wonder, and, and John said it best. He goes, you know, I'll smile at you, just don't hurt me. What, you know, what, what do you think possessed people to throw a flash cube? Or, or I'm sure there's something even weirder that got thrown in, in Chicago. I, it was, yeah, it was just mass hysteria because, you know, again, you've got jump ropes on stage, you've got balls on stage, you've got shoes on stage. And in the case of Chicago, now I can't completely 100% say this absolutely happened, but in the primary sources of the day, and all historians go to primary sources, it's the original newspapers, the original reporting, talking to the people that were originally there that left notes and things like that that were written that day. Um, you know, Larry Kane, who traveled with the group, uh, you know, journalist, uh, said that there was raw meat thrown on stage. Uh, Chicago, great place for it. The meatpacking industry uh, was right next to the International Amphitheater. So why not bring a T-bone steak and, and <laughs> hurl it at the Beatles? I, I don't know if that was true because Larry Kane has a very descriptive uh, part in his book about this in terms of the, the uh, meat hitting Paul's uh, breast uh, pocket on his, on his tour jacket. Uh, he also talks about George kicking it away. He also talks about Ringo kind of peering over his drums, looking at it. It almost just seems too unbelievable to be believed. Yeah, I mean, all, all that's missing is that John added a bit of salt and pepper and started to eat. Exactly. I mean, it just... Do you, but now, I'm going to write it because it's in the primary source of the day, and I really want to let the reader like kind of decide. And maybe what I really hoped for was that some fan would, would contact me that actually went to the show that was sitting in the first, second, or third row that could confirm this and say, yeah, Chuck, I was there. I saw it. It happened. But I haven't, haven't gotten a message. I mean, we know exactly that, that firecrackers were, flo- were thrown on the stage in Memphis in 1966 because oh. we hear it in the audio recording when it hit the stage. So we know yeah. that happened. So the meat and we actually, I actually got contacted by the guy who claimed he, he had done it. So yeah, so yeah, they, they they do come out sometimes. So so I guess my question would be, do you suppose that incident had anything to do with the creation of the butcher cover a couple of years later? <laughs> yeah, with the with the meat staining and on the on the jacket and all that. Who knows? Might have might have perked some sort of uh, interest in that. But uh, that's definitely one for the ages. But. You know, I mean, other things that are thrown on stage, I mean, definitely lipstick, uh, you know, covers, kind of those little hard kind of metal lipstick covers, they were thrown on stage. 
and necklaces and you know all kind of just weird stuff all teddy bears yeah teddy bears over yeah, time. all kind of weird stuff thrown on the stage so you know it's interesting because when you hear live recordings and things like that of the shows they don't miss a beat they just kind of just keep in their little rhythm section going and the vocals and they just they just it sounds like nothing happened you know it's just another day at the office uh, Eric, you need to study the audio of the show and see if you can hear a steak slapping Paul. <laughs> now, Chicago and the state of Illinois both featured in the Beatles story. You know, certainly with you know George Harrison was the first um, Beatle to visit the United States in September of '63. He visited his sister Louise in Illinois. Benton, Illinois, yeah. yeah. And then, of course, Chicago's home to VJ Records, which was one of the early labels to distribute their music in the U.S. And you and I were at 1449 South Michigan Avenue not so long ago. That is correct. Investigating the historic site of a VJ. And, and you know... I, the derelict site. Well, it wasn't derelict, really, but it was gutted inside, wasn't it, the building? You know, it amazes me where there are certain historic sites. And I think South Michigan Ave had, you know, it had chess records. Right. VJ Records, you know, founded in actually uh, uh, Gary, Indiana, but moved uh, over to Chicago, uh, VJ being... Vivian Carter and her husband James Bracken, right? right. So the V comes from Vivian and the J comes from James, uh, who who started the label in the fifties. It was you know really a great R and B label. Uh, you know had, uh, you know when I think about it, uh, some of those records are lost to time, except things like Gene Chandler doing the Duke of Earl, which everybody. I mean I don't you know I would imagine everybody knows that record. Duke 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 of Earl. He's back from the grave, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, there it is. I mean, that was an impressive Gene Chandler, I will say. Yes. VJ uh, is a very, besides the Chicago connection, what a wonderful story. The probably before uh, before Barry Gordy and and uh, Motown, this is your most successful African American owned record company uh, in America. They had people like Memphis Slim, they had John Lee Hooker, they had Gene Chandler, they had D. Clark, they had Jerry Butler. Yes. Betty Everett doing You're No Good, You're No Good, You're No Good. And and even, I mean, a tenuous Beatle connection, but Bobby Parker, who earlier on another label had a, a very Watch in- Your Step. Watch your step. He did not have that hit on he it was that was his days before vj but he was a vj artist i mean mm-hmm. and actually the coolest of all vj was the label that brought little richard back after richard went religious and he stopped recording for specialty when he came back he was on vj and he re-recorded some of his hits and uh and also some songs he never did some classics so there is that that vj connection but cool enough that VJ was this African-American-owned company when that just wasn't happening much. You had a woman, uh, Barbara Proctor, who was known as Barbara Gardner in those days, who played a quite pivotal role in the Beatles' uh, career. So this young lady goes over, now, mind you, in a male-oriented business, forget that, hard enough, forget that she's African-American and a woman, uh, she ended up being a, a very historic uh, character. She was the first African-American woman to own her own advertising agency. 
decorated up the yin-yang. Please go look her up, folks. Barbara Proctor, also known as Barbara Gardner Proctor. An incredible woman, 85 years young, still going strong. What a visionary. And yet this is the how poignant to me that the Beatles' entry into America truly came through African America, the very music that they so celebrated, loved, uh, worshipped. It's so fitting, even though it didn't quite work. Uh, as far not on the first go round anyway, but here's a little bit from Barbara about uh, you know how it all happened. I went to EMI Records and said we have this great world-renowned group. Who do you have for me to take back? And they said we want you to take back the Beatles. And I said the what's? And uh, they said the Beatles. It's going to be big. I said sure, right? And. <laughs> Uh, we, we are just as proud as Punch because it really made all the difference in the world to, uh, to have that impetus uh, start right here in America on our own little Chicago label. VJ understood that the Beatles were a big deal, even though they were a throw-in with Frank Ifield, can you believe it? They knew they were a big deal in Europe, and they did release the singles. They did not do well. They didn't do anything. Um, I do remember speaking with uh, DJ... Uh, Arnie Ginsberg, one of the legendary DJs from the 50s onwards into the 60s from Boston, and he had a, t- uh, a radio show called Make It or Break It, or a segment on his show, and he recalled to me how he played one of the VJ records of the Beatles, and the idea behind Make It or Break It is the kids would call in after he played the record, and if they liked it, that meant make it, we'll hear it again. If, that, if they didn't like it, they'd say break it, and they would play a sound effect of a smashing record and that would be the end of it right so uh i I was interviewing arnie for something else and he goes uh i hate to tell you this eric but um it got the break it and so this really yeah and and he says you know a few months later of course the kennedy assassination everything changes the whole world changed everything there's so much uh symbiotic stuff that happens mm. but vj was at the center chicago's vj was right at the center of this and uh as i say this marvelous woman uh, barbara proctor taking this chance she could have picked other things but she came back with the beatles now mind you in the vj story a lot of people realize that uh they made a lot of money off of this stuff because they kept re-releasing, you know, the Beatles versus the Four Seasons or Jolly Watt, Frank Eidfield and the Beatles. You know, good for them. Yeah. They, they got sued by Capitol Records and they, um, they won the, 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 the lawsuits. Um, some of it may have been a little racially biased. You know, maybe not, but I'm just, that's just, I'm throwing it out there. Uh, but the idea is, in a sense, they won the cases and they were allowed to release these records right till the end of a certain contract. Um, and uh, especially, do you want to know a secret? You George fans out there, one of George's proudest moments is a single, Do You Want to Know a Secret? Became like number one in New York for maybe a week or something, but it was the VJ single. He was so proud of that. And I have a tape of him talking about it. Good old VJ. Good old VJ, but, you know, important important cog in the Beatles history that's so not dealt with. Correct. Yeah. And of course you had those two huge powerhouse stations, you know, WLS and WCFL, uh, both vying for the rights to uh, 
you know, have the Beatles be spot, you know, sponsoring the Beatles and WLS got it. But I interviewed a lot of the disc jockeys from, from both of those. Uh, stations and they just said it was just a magic time. I mean, these were powerful stations that went all through that region, you know, blasting out Beatle music and trying everything they could to get uh, sponsorship and listenership to boost their ratings. So it was a big deal back then. I mean, AM radio was was it. It was just so important to get these huge, you know, concerts and and for these these radio stations to sponsor the groups. Now, you mentioned WLS. That station, reportedly, was the very first American radio station to play a Beatles record, wasn't it? Please Please Me, back in February of 63. Yes, that is correct. And um, when I interviewed Clark Weber, he was a, a DJ there at WLS, they were given a bunch of Beatles singles to play, and, and the rep said, look, you got to play. These guys are hot over in England, you know, and... And they played them, and in Clark's words, they just rolled over and died. They just never took root in America. Now, tell us, you said that, you know, they flew in from Milwaukee. They were supposed to arrive at O'Hare Airport. That got switched to Midway, and then on to the press conference, which has a kind of connection with the stockyards. Tell us about that. Yeah, so they were supposed to fly into O'Hare, and there was a, uh, you know, a problem with that because uh, one of the... Um, Promoters in town kind of it was supposed to be a secret that they were going to fly into Midway because they didn't want a big problem there and uh, He let it out and uh, Richard Daly was the mayor at the time and his right his aide Just got furious with this promoter guy. He said he was going to hold him, you know jail him and you know never let him in on anything ever again and and so you know there's because there's a lot of kids there at Midway when they landed but so they, um, when they get off the plane, they do a luncheon at the Saddle and Sirloin Club next to the, kind of somewhat adjacent to the International Amphitheater. And that's where they held the press conference. That's where Ringo received that famous gold snare drum uh, from the Ludwig Company because Ludwig was based in Chicago. And um, yeah, they did that before the concert and at the, at the amphitheater that night. What was your impression of the Chicago skyline? What was that? Oh, yeah, good. That's it. It really looked like any other, you know. Really did. Yeah. I didn't. We thought it was rather distinctive. Oh, well, each people, you know, everybody likes their own hometown, don't they? You've been on this tour quite some time now in America, and I'm sure you've learned quite a bit. If you had it to do again, and chances are you're planning that, what would you change, if anything? Well, we'd probably just go to different cities, so we say not go to the same places we've been to. Are you satisfied with the security? Are you satisfied <coughs> yes. with the arrangements that we made? Yeah. It's been quite good, except for the slip-ups where we don't see the fans. And you uh, say this is not your fault? It's not, no. We never arrange anything. The only thing we arrange is what numbers we're going to sing. Who's fault is it? I don't know. It could be. It's, it's different people. Half the time it's the police, half the time it's... I don't know, you know. It's, there's always somebody that does something. Don't you think it's done for your good? They think it is. They think it is, but it isn't. It, it harms us more in the end anyway, because the poor fans that have been there for 12 hours think, why aren't they coming to see us? Yeah, you know? see, the worst thing from our point of view is that it looks as though it's us who's done it too. And uh, I was watching the TV last night, and on the news, uh, they just showed all the fans who were disappointed in things. And they didn't actually say anything about whose fault it was. They just said, police commissioner so-and-so 
said the Beatles wanted to land there, and he said no more. But you know, that really sounded as though we'd said, please don't let us amongst all those fans, we ate them. Which is completely untrue, you know, and we'd definitely asked to meet, uh, meet them, or at least drive past them, you know, and they told us no. Have you uh, fellas given any thought to what you're going to do when the bubble breaks, so to speak? <laughs> well, we're going to have a good time. We've never retirement or buying into a big business and becoming tight. We already are a big business, so we don't have to buy into another one. Well, I'm talking about if this business should uh, wane slightly. Well, we've got, you know... We'll start planning when it starts to wane. But at the moment, we'll just let it go on as it is. Anyway, you know, we've never made plans for anything, so there's no real reason to make well, plans. Well, in your particular now. case, do you think you'll go into songwriting as a business? I should imagine that well, John and I... Paul and I make more money out of songwriting than we do out of doing everything else. So we'll just carry on with that, probably. Chicago's mobbed-up reputation preceded it, and Paul alluded to that in the press conference, didn't he? He did. He said he wanted to see mobsters with those wide-brimmed hats and those big, wide ties... And, of course, he, he never saw one because Chicago is what we know as a drop-in date, meaning they didn't stay the night there. They flew in. They did the concert. They flew out to Detroit to prepare for the shows the next evening. And so, yeah, it was a drop-in date. But, uh, you know, Paul would uh, obviously be staying at a really well-known mobster place the next year when they came back to Chicago when they stayed at the O'Hare Sahara Inn, which was owned by a local mobster by the name of Manny Scar. Yeah, well, we'll get to that in a bit. Before that, though, there was a girl at the press conference, wasn't there, who actually wanted to uh, handcuff herself to Paul? <laughs> yeah, pretty much uh, a, lot, a lot of the conferences, there would be kind of crazy things happening. I mean, girls would try to find every imaginable way to get close to the Beatles. They would fake themselves as journalists. They would put themselves in room service carts. They would mail themselves in boxes and packages to the press conferences. It was just crazy. I mean, we're never, ever going to see this ever again, I don't think. The, the hysteria and all the creative ways of trying to get close to the Beatles. And, um, but yeah, so one girl said, hey, I'm just going to bring some handcuffs to the press conference, and this is going to be an easy way does. to get close to Paul. I'm just going to put one arm, one hand in handcuffs and put the other cuff into Paul's and he's mine forever. As the groupy thing went on, Paul might have liked that whole handcuff thing. That might have been an actually a, a way to a man's uh, heart is through his handcuffs. <laughs> so tell us also about the fairly unique ushering service that the Beatles were accorded in Chicago. Yeah, so the, uh, with, you're talking about the Andy Frayne Company and also, because there were several ushers. There was yep. the Andy Frayne Company, there were fighter, firefighters involved, and there was a special group of girls and they were kind of different in each city. They were named different uh, things like Beetle Bobbies or, you know, whatever. And they would actually dress in English-type clothes. And there would be maybe a troop of between 20 and 40 of them. And they were the ones that were kind of put in charge to kind of keep the hysteria to a critical low which they really didn't do a good job doing. But they, they, had, they had to be <laughs> tested themselves that they didn't have the hysteria. So I don't know how that test happened. I don't know if they were 
and you know sat in a room and had to listen to Beatles records and they didn't utter a word. I don't know what happened, but they were very dedicated uh, girls, teenage girls that could kind of, you know, keep to themselves, keep their cool, yet kind of help the other girls who were fainting or having some problems with hysteria. Now, that, uh, that's one I've never heard. Now, reading from your book, I'll quote, Leighton McLaughlin, a, a reporter for the Chicago Sun-Times, wrote, if the energy expended by the fans were directed properly, the United States could have a man on the moon tomorrow. In breaking down the financial prowess of the band, McLaughlin further reported, in a sense, however, the energy has been captured. The Beatles made roughly $250 a man per minute. That is $15,000 an hour, or $600,000 for a 40-hour week. With 52 weeks in a year and with paid vacation, that's $31.2 million a year apiece. But of course, they, did, they don't work full time. <laughs> that's nearly yeah, busking money. Yeah, that, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. For this podcast, I'm sure you're kind of about getting that type yeah, of Yeah, getting money. close but to it, yes. That, look, that was, that was, they were making a large amount of money. Um, the expenses weren't that high. Uh, they chartered that uh, American Flyers airline for about thirty-eight thousand for the whole trip. Uh, that's you know all through North America. Uh, they paid for a little bit, obviously, a flight from from London to the West Coast. Um, they a lot of the hotel rooms that they were given were comped. They didn't pay for those. Right. I mean, equipment transportation, I mean, there just wasn't that much cost. So they're, they're making, you know, look, their guarantees were between twenty and 40000 You also have to add the gate in after that, which was between 60% and 70% of the gate. So they're walking away with checks. You know, Indianapolis, I think they were walked away with $90,000. You know, San Francisco, one shows $40,000 they walked away with. You start adding up uh, all of those, and they're making they're making a lot of money. Yeah, because Bill Deal again, you quote him in the book that he covered the show for the Pioneer Press in Minnesota, but he was covering the Chicago show, and he said that the Beatles came, saw, conquered. They were cool, calm, and collected. Cool despite the crush, calm despite the turmoil, and collected about thirty thousand dollars for twenty five minutes of work, and it was worth every penny. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, they would try to do these shows between anywhere between 30 and 35 minutes. I'm speaking with Ivor Davis. He's a reporter with the London Express, and he's been flying along on the tour with the Beatles. Ivor, how did you like the show tonight? Well, I thought it was quite a tremendous show, actually. Uh, of course, you know, for me, who's been on, been on every, every show, seeing every show, I think, you know, I, get, I, I cease to be uh, amazed at the fantastic reception, and Chicago was no exception. Well, the one thing that struck me, I have never in my life, Ivor, I have never heard a din like I've heard tonight. Was, was tonight particularly loud? Well, I think, I think tonight, although the crowd wasn't the biggest, for example, in Seattle we had, a, we had about 25,000, and Vancouver the same, Chicago's noise was fantastic. Uh, the kids uh, made more noise than I've heard for a long time. Well, I, I mentioned once earlier that it, it's amazing that these four boys can draw so much love and adulation from a crowd, and then when you realize it's gone on city after city, 
Uh, how do they feel about it? You talk to them all the time. Yeah, well, the boys themselves uh, expected a big reception, but they are absolutely overwhelmed at this tremendous uh, reception in Chicago and in almost every city they're set in, uh, they've landed in. Um, there's no explanation. They, they know, they realize this is a going thing. The Beatles, are, you know, the Beatles are, uh, mania is, is tremendous. They realize that, uh, you know, sort of make hay while the sun shines, but they're not big-headed about it. They're very modest, in fact. Amazing. I've noticed that. Were you at the press conference this yes, afternoon? Yes, I was. What was your impression, then? Well, this is the second time yes. I've talked to them, and they're they're very well-behaved boys. They're they're dignified. I like the way they carry themselves. They're quite humorous as well, aren't they? That's for sure. Uh -huh. And I just hope it does carry through the years. Well, um, I tell you, I spoke to one of their close party of party members, or when I say party members, members of the group. And they think they, the boys are going to go for another five years. Well, I certainly hope so. They're certainly living in fine style, with the exception that uh, they're cooped up in this plane all the time, aren't they? Well, they're cooped up in the plane, they're cooped up in hotel rooms, they're cooped up in dressing rooms. But funnily enough, they're working, they realize to some extent that, that this is part of the job. This is a, you know, one night stand. They'd love to see more of Chicago, they really would, they, they told me. Uh, we'd love to see more of, you know, other cities. Vancouver's a lovely city. But, you know, they realize that it's a, a, a tough, uh, you know, a grueling itinerary and that they've just got to in and out and away. And this is what we're doing tonight. Do any of them ever mention that they'd like to come back after it's all over and visit some of the towns they've been through? Well, yeah, they do say that. The, 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 what they would like to do, though, is to come back without any fuss and bother. And, 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 and at this particular time, I don't see it. Well, I don't either, frankly. Yeah. I'll say one thing personally. This has been one of the most tremendous experiences I've ever gone through. I felt an electricity in that crowd, the likes of which I have never felt in my life. Does this get through at all to the Beatles themselves? I think so. Um, they, 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 uh, they do respond. When the audience is responding, they respond. And, you know, they, 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 put, they gag more, they clown more, they put a lot into it. You know, the little movements that they have. You know, the more they do that, the more they like the crowd. Would you say that anyone is on this tour has ever heard their music? Well, I've heard about six or seven songs, and then I was about four inches from the, from the loudspeaker. But I agree, I, I usually take two earplugs uh, and a, some dark glasses, and, and that's it, you know. Ivor, if you ever come back to Chicago and you're by yourself, look us up. Thanks. We'd certainly like to show you our town. Many thanks indeed. Nice meeting you. Anyway. Pleasure. Bye-bye stayed here at the airport ever since the arrival to make sure that they could see the Beatles leave tonight. It's now five minutes to 11. The plane has already been loaded and the Beatles are already inside the plane. They're sitting in the back windows there. I don't know whether you can see them or not. There you can see one with the sunglasses on. That's about as close as they'll allow us to come. I think maybe they might come out of the plane. We're not too sure about that. They have put the stairs down on the front end of the plane, and it appears they may come out. They may come out. You sure about that? Let's go back and talk to this crowd over here. We were at the amphitheater. How'd you like it? Was it loud enough for you? Yeah, $5.50. You paid $5.50 for your tickets? Were you downstairs? You'll pay $10.50 if they come again. Sure, I like the Beatles. Everybody loves the Beatles.
So now 65, they basically, this time it's not a drop-in show, this time it's at a different venue. T tell us about the decision-making. Well, 1965, uh, Brian's prophecy that uh, the Beatles would play in bigger venues came true. I mean, now, with the success of the 1964 tour, Brian now felt comfortable in accepting larger venues. So that's why we have our, you know, Shea Stadium show on August 15th of that year to kick off the 1965 tour. We have White Sox Park. You know, we have larger venues. But he also stuck with, you know, smaller venues as well, like theaters and not theaters, but uh, coliseums and, and things like that. But the difference being that if they're going to do a coliseum show, they're going to do two shows. They're not going to do one show. Right. And so that was the big difference in 65. So a lot of people think that after the Shea Stadium show on August 15th, that the Beatles only played stadiums after that. And that's, that's false. And as a matter of fact, the Beatles, the only sellout show they ever did was the Shea Stadium show. There was no other uh, completely sold out shows the Beatles ever did, even in 1964. Isn't that amazing, really? That's amazing. Even the um, even the Hollywood Bowl ones. Yeah, there were uh, there were a few empty seats, believe it or not, for the Hollywood Bowl. I seem to remember in the deep dark past hearing that uh, Chuck, you were once one of the premier collectors of untorn Beatles concert tickets. Is that a rumor or is it true? That is absolutely true. That's really what got me into collecting. Is that I found an unused Candlestick Park ticket, which those are pretty easy to find, but somehow it just gave me this passion of wow these are really cool because it's not like something you print out of your computer now when you go to a show it's just so generic looking and even the Ticketron tickets of the 1970s just aren't interesting but when I saw these vintage tickets that were printed in the 60s I thought wow these are really cool I mean some of them have their faces on it I mean they're different colors different type styles these are really neat. And different sizes. They're... They were beautiful. Yeah. Things, yeah. Oh, yeah. Different sizes. I mean, they're almost kind of like a work of art. They're the radio station was listed on it. You know, like in Jacksonville, they had the Big Ape, you know, W-A-P-E Radio Presents. And I, I just thought it was so cool, you know. And so I started collecting them. And I thought, wouldn't it be neat to get like an un, unused ticket for every show they ever did in North America? And so I started that quest about 25 years ago. And I'm down to about three shows that I do not have an unused ticket. Well, why don't you for. tell listeners which ones you're looking for? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know your listeners are vast and numerous. Yes. So All over the world as well. Yes, exactly. If your listeners have an unused ticket for the Cleveland 1964 show that was at Public Auditorium, I'd like to talk to you. If one of your listeners has an unused ticket for the Montreal afternoon show, I want to talk to you. Or if one of your listeners has a ticket for the Carnegie Hall show in February, the first visit, the 7 p.m. show, not the 9.30 show, the 7 p.m. show, I want to talk to you. Once I have that, I'll have a complete collection. I think I would be, at that point, the only person on the planet that would have that collection, which would be pretty neat to have. Now, of course, the Beatles' appearance at White Sox Park in 1965 was actually the very first stadium show in Chicago history, wasn't it? 
That's correct, yeah, White Sox Park. And it kind of had that moniker of White Sox Park just for a very short while, just between 1962 and 1976. Right. Uh, but other than that, it was usually called Kamitsky Park. Yeah. It's now, I believe, called U.S. Cellular Field. Well, and that's, that's next door to the old Kamitsky because Kamitsky door. got knocked yeah. down. Yeah. But I remember I went to Kamitsky Park in, I want to say, 1981. Mm. And so I, you know, I was there originally. Obviously, it didn't have kind of some of the original configurations. But some interesting things, obviously, at White Sox Park through the years. They had the infamous disco demolition night Absolutely. in 1979, yeah. uh, which that was a doubleheader game. And they had to actually cancel the second game and award it to the visiting team because the field was ruined and the you know they had a gigantic riot that night <laughs> but but yeah it was the the first stadium show and it was actually just scheduled to be one show they were going to do one show at 4 p.m and then uh the promoters uh again which was triangle theater productions uh franklin fried and dick gasson asked for a second show so then they they changed it uh the the showings uh the afternoon show 3 p.m which was the only officially scheduled afternoon show the Beatles ever did in North America, although they did do that rain makeup show in 1966 in Cincinnati right. at 12 noon. Yeah. I can't imagine the Beatles doing a show at 12 noon and what their state of being must have been like. But, um, <laughs> you know. What was the attendance like at both shows? Because I think Comiskey, well, White Sox Park back then, 46,500 capacity. Yeah, so the afternoon show was just over 25,000, and I believe the evening show was just under 37,000. Yeah. So they had a good, you know, it was a good turnout. But, I mean, was it basically regarded, though, as a bust that they didn't fill it out? I don't think so, because try to find another band during that era that could fill that many seats. Yeah. I think promoters, when they saw that... Uh, 30,000, 40,000 fans were coming to a rock concert. They had to have been thrilled. Yeah, think of the support. Just like at a baseball game now, I think there was an awful lot of Coca-Cola being sold there that day. Yeah, I mean, the Dave Clark Five couldn't do that. Well, the Stones definitely couldn't have done that in, during that period of time. This was all kind of being invented as it was going along. I mean, yeah. no one had ever kind of blazed the trail. Elvis Presley, at the height of his career, when he was, you know, um, before he went into the army and all that, um, in doing the movies and all of that. I mean, he he was playing amphitheaters and he played the you know international amphitheater and things like that. But I, if you look at his 1957 tour, there's some high school gymnasiums involved in that. And so when the Beatles came and they're filling up these you know, large amphitheaters, coliseums. Later in 65, they're, they're more than half filling up stadiums. It had to have been huge for, for them to be able to do that. So they were definitely blazing a trail, which kind of gave promoters an idea that, wow, music can bring in a lot of people. And I think it was the genesis for promoters thinking about Woodstock later on, about Watkins Glen, about Live Aid, that music can really bring a lot of people together if it's presented correctly, and they can make a lot of money off of it. Kind of created a whole new industry thanks to the Beatles doing that. I feel fine. 
Now, we mentioned before about WLS being the first radio station in America to play a Beatles record back in February of 63. Tell us about the sort of radio wars taking place in Chicago in 65, vying especially for the moniker of being, you know, the Beatles station as such between WLS and WCFL. Yeah, it happened in every every city. There was basically in every major city there was basically two radio stations that would kind of go head to toe with each other, uh, trying to you know steal ratings, trying to attract fans, trying to do special promotions. Uh, and Chicago was no different. I mean, the powerhouse was WLS, obviously. WCFL was probably a close second. Uh, but really, WLS ruled the world, and they should have got that concert, and they did get that concert. Uh, but in other cities, I mean, there were some, some major things happening. I know in my hometown of San Diego, um, the main station of that day was KCBQ, but actually the second station, KGB, actually got the show because they promised the promoter they could sell the thing out in a matter of weeks, which they didn't. It was a promise. But KCBQ, because they lost that promotion, really went to really did some dirty things to KGB. They they hired a DJ by the name of Tim Hudson, whose whose name was uh, uh, stage name was uh, Lord Tim of Liverpool, and he personally claimed that he knew the Beatles and all of this. So they hired the guy. And he had no experience as a DJ. He, they said he couldn't play records. He didn't know how to do it. He couldn't punch in the ads when he had to put punch in the ads. The girls liked him because he had that kind of, you know, beetle look and the haircut and all that. But KCBQ threatened KGB that they were going to have Lord Tim at the concert to help introduce the Beatles. And, of course, KGB didn't want Lord Tim anywhere near Balboa Stadium. And actually, a few days before the concert, they got a court injunction against KCBQ to have Lord Tim of Liverpool not be anywhere near that stadium, which, you know, the judge accepted to do. So, yeah, every city that the Beatles went to, there was radio wars because listenership was so important because of advertisers and advertisers paid the bill and the salaries of the DJs and enriched the radio station owners. So... Yeah, no different in Chicago. I think it went back and forth a bit, too, um, because a couple of years later, well, certainly by 65, Jim Stagg, who was a very powerful DJ who's normally associated with Chicago, but was in Cleveland during the 64 tour um, at a different station. He came into Chicago over to CFL. And, he did. Uh, yeah, and, you know, he, he actually had a fantastic rapport with the Beatles and did um for my money he's probably one of the the top two or three whoever interviewed them because he he just had such an easy manner of speech and he didn't ask the same dumb questions over and over again he seemed to be able to get a little below the surface and do that pretty quickly he was a great interviewer so he kind of entered the fray i i know by 66 i think cfl was the sponsor over at the they certainly were broadcasting live from uh, the international amphitheater for the final shows yeah, both, both both radio stations would do that. They would send their people to the press press conference, and uh, you know try to get in angles that the other station couldn't couldn't do. So yeah, I think they were in on the floor though. I mean, if you listen to those tapes, they they actually, which is one of my one of my holy grails, is 
they obviously were recording in line. You get stage introductions for the opening act and perfect opening acts and perfect quality. It's like, okay, somehow I think somebody left the machines running from the Beatles were on. Just a just a thought. <laughs> you know, where are they now? Who knows? WLS was the sole sponsor for the Beatles in Chicago in 65, but WCFL actually scored the coup of getting an exclusive interview with the Beatles in between the two 66 shows. Yeah, and that's via Jim Stagg again, because Jim traveled uh, with the Beatles along with, uh, not to every gig, but a large portion of the tour, mm. and he'd send reports back, and he, he obviously was uh, traveling with Larry Kane. So Jim Stagg had a uh, had a huge in with the Beatles and had a little bit of a coup for WCFL getting these interviews over WLS at the press conference. Yeah, yeah. he had he had a relationship with Tony Barrow. They did a uh, Tony would be a guest on his show doing the uh, I forget what they call it the report from London with Tony Barrow, uh, which were really amazing segments where he Tony would really tell you backstage story you know little little things here and there about the Beatles that you'd never heard before. So that was. Jim did have a really good relationship with the Beatles and their management. When the Beatles arrived in Chicago in 65, they were invited to a luncheon at the Saddle and Cycle Club on Lakeshore Drive. And isn't that where they came into contact with Winky the Weather Bunny? <laughs> Winky the Weather Bunny, one of my absolute favorite stories that uh, came out of the mar uh, mouth of uh, Clark Weber, the DJ for WLS. So um, they had done this luncheon before the show. Now, remember, they had flown in in the middle of the night to Chicago from Houston. So, you know, they get into their hotel in Schiller Park, you know, uh, pretty late. And then they're getting up pretty early to do this thing around noonish because uh, their first show is at 3, 3 p.m. Now, they're not going on at 3 p.m. They have all the support acts going on. So they'd probably go on about 4, 4.30 Anyways, uh, they do this show, and uh, the weather girl for WLS. Now, you know, back then, it's obviously pretty sexist. I mean, you called her a weather girl. And um, you know, it's obviously a, you know, a buxom kind of blonde, really good-looking girl that did the, did the weather. You know, that's why people would tune in. And so WLS had a girl by the name, her name, her real name was Edwina Rast. Uh, it's who probably now not much in, better. Yeah, who lives in Texas. Um, but Edwina Rass uh, had the stage name of Winky the Weather Bunny. Imagine that going over today in today's <laughs> do, news. Do we know why I she mean. was called Winky? Oh, you don't want to no ask idea. that. That's a loaded question. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, so Winky attends this uh, luncheon thing it, on the Lakeshore Drive. Uh, with the Beatles were present and kind of had a spot somewhat next to George and she came in a tennis outfit and she was on it was kind of in between because she was on her way to a modeling appointment and uh, kind of caught George's eye and uh, shocking he started yeah talking things like that and and uh, she said, well, I've got to go to this modeling appointment. And he said, well, you know, this is obviously from Clark Weber, who's overhearing this thing. And uh, she says, well, I've got to go to this model, modeling appointment. And George says, well, you don't have to leave that quick. And, and she said, well, watch. And she just <laughs> got up and left <laughs> and went to this modeling appointment. So, you know, obviously George got a little uh, consternated with that. 
But uh, what was interesting is that the evening show that they did, um, there's pictures of her in the book. You'll see it. Yes. <laughs> she is standing on the field with none other than her date. And uh, her date had asked for tickets from Clark Weber, free tickets, field passes, to get onto the, uh, to the uh, field to watch them perform. And there's a picture in the book of her uh, talking with Mal Evans and the boyfriend and Clark Weber standing there. It's actually quite hilarious because I'm looking at the photo right now and it looks as if George is watching her at the side of the stage. Exactly, because she's in a nice black sleeveless kind of cocktail dress, you know, and with her nice blonde hair. And he is kind of looking over there a bit dismayed, isn't he? He is. He absolutely is. <laughs> He's not used to that, is he? Do you believe in the various sounds, such as the Mersey or the Tottenham or the Manchester? If they continue making songs that people want to buy, there's no reason why they shouldn't. Do you wish fans would listen more instead of screaming at concerts? We've, we've proved that we can be heard and screamed at all at once, you know. But still, if, they do, the if the people do want to scream, you know, it's, it's up to them. They've paid to get in, you know, who are we to say what they should do when they get in? How long did it take you to grow your hair and how often do you wash it? It's always been fairly long, so it didn't doesn't take long to grow. And we'd use any kind of shampoo. Is your second movie more commercialized than the first? I think it is more commercial, yeah. Yeah, it is. And the song also? The song, no. I don't know. It's well, more, it's, well, it's doing better business, so it must be more commercial. Um, Paul, if I may, uh, the British Help album is quite a bit different, as you well know by now, from the American. There are seven tracks in the... Capital album here, and in the uh, Parlophone there are twelve. May I ask you? And your your record yesterday 14. has the potential of becoming a hit single. Why did you? Uh, why did? What prompted you to record that on your own yesterday? Uh, the the reason we recorded it on our own was uh, because it save us learning it. Yeah, it was because it was at the very end of the session, and I was the only one who knew the chords, so I just played it on my own with the guitar. And then uh, George Martin and I, who was our recording manager, wrote the uh, strings to go on it. So. Uh, we don't well, go home. They don't go home by that. It's a beauty. Thank, Thank you. Uh, Ringo, why do you want to record one song per album? Is there any reason for that? Um, this album, in the American album, this time there were no songs. No. Some of the fans are kind well, of... Well, that's, that's the American record. We can't record. do anything about that. That's well, capital. Well, capital you know. Records, you know, if you all write in and moan about it... If you, you know, keep moaning, you'll get the proper album. tracks for every album, but Capital will keep about ten and shove out a couple of rubbishy things, you know, with instrumentals on it. You know, we make a, we make a proper album. We, we plan albums. We plan each yeah. number that should follow each other. Someone who wasn't dismayed, I'd assume, was Paul, who as you said, at the 64 press conference, said, you know, he was hoping to meet some mobsters in Chicago, and he basically came directly into contact with one, staying at Maniscar Sahara Inn on Mannheim Road in the Chicago suburb of Schiller Park. Exactly. So uh, that's where the Beatles, because they had a bit of a layover before, you know, they had to do the two shows in Chicago. They get in the middle of the night from, from Houston. They spend the night, they get there in the early morning hours of the Manny Scars. Uh, Sahara O'Hare Inn, which was in Schiller Park. And uh, so they get there that morning. They spend the next day there. They do the show. Then they spend another night. So there's two nights there. And it's a really interesting hotel because it's kind of a Las Vegas kind of looking spot. It's, uh, you know, a lot of uh, Romanesque type architecture, kind of gaudy. 
um, some nice appointments, some, you know, very large Venetian type plantings, you know, a boot boot size shaped pool, really nice place. It actually, and, uh, the way you describe it, it, from the photo in the book, from the outside, it just looks like a roadside motel. It does. And, uh, but I guess once you got into it, it was a really, really nice place. And from my understanding, it was kind of the forerunner to Caesar's palace in Las Vegas. Uh, well, the, one of the owners, his name was Jay Sarno, actually got some ideas from that very hotel to um, start the hotel in Las Vegas as this kind of Romanesque type of architecture and all that. So did the Beatles ever come into contact with Manny Scar? That I don't know. Um, I imagine in my mind that they must have because Manny Scar was, you know, a reputed mobster and... Manny Scar is going to want to meet the Beatles. I just, you get us got to feel that. You know, he wants to introduce his wife. If he has kids, he's definitely going to, you know, pop by their room, make sure everything's okay, introduce himself as the owner of the hotel. I mean, other owners and general managers did that in other cities. So I obviously wouldn't put that past Manny to do that. Tell us what happened to Manny. So Manny wasn't paying his interest payments on the hotel, and uh, there was a mob boss in Chicago by the name of Rocco DeStefano. And Rocco placed a hit on Manny because he wasn't paying Rocco his interest payments on time, and mobsters don't appreciate that. And so 22 days after the Beatles left that hotel, Manny Scar was murdered. Wow. Yes. Plus, I also think that, uh, you know, Paul gave a pretty prophetic, statement at the press conference when things get older that a lot of people think they're better because they're older like us people will like us a lot more when we're older you watch <laughs> pretty prophetic yeah think about it now can you imagine a 40,000 or 46,000 capacity stadium it would be sold out multiple times absolutely uh, I, I remember seeing Paul in Chicago when he came through uh, I don't know was it five six seven eight years ago yeah at Wrigley, Wrigley Field, and um, he, he not only had seating in Wrigley Field in the normal stands, but there was also the field seating, and that place was completely sold out. Yeah. And he played there, I think, a couple nights. So, yeah, no problem at all. Now, when Eric was in Chicago recently, I took him to Marge's Candies, which on a Sunday afternoon was absolutely packed out. We couldn't sit down. We kind of crammed into a corner standing up. And, of course, there is the, the booth there that's got a a small plaque saying that the Beatles were there in 65. Tell us about that. And I've never seen any photo evidence of them being there, but the ownership absolutely claims that they ate there. Well, I would really love to know this story. Obviously, I presented it in the book as somewhat of a fact, but I'm not sure they were there. It, it makes sense that they were there because Margie's Candies is right in between White Sox Park and the Sahara O'Hare Hotel. Right. Okay, so it makes sense that they would have played on the south side of Chicago at White Sox Park, got in the limos, getaway cars, whatever they used back then, drove to Margie's Candy. It was in the Bucktown area of Chicago. Yeah. Did, did their thing there where they had the atomic blaster Sundays and all that. Got in the car. Atomic busters, and they were there with some girls, weren't they? Yeah, five girls. Yeah. And then they leave from there and they go back to the hotel. Okay, sounds like a great story, but 
Okay, you're trying to tell me in the height of Beatlemania there's not one picture of this? No, anywhere? Well, no no well, one had their had... cell phones, did they? Well, no, obviously no <laughs> one had their cell phones. But the press, I mean, the press isn't following him. I mean, we know that people followed the getaway cars. We knew people were milling around outside the stadiums and venues that the Beatles played at. We know that they got in their cars and they followed them. Would they have followed him to this place and someone had a camera? Now, someone told me that there is a picture of them in Margie's Candies, but I've never been able to confirm it. No one has a photo of them in a booth eating ice cream sundaes with these girls. No one. So all we have to all we have to do is take the word of this owner who absolutely claims could have been lookalikes that came in there. Security-wise, how could the Beatles sit in there and, and, and eat Sundays and just not be bothered? Well, I want you to know that the Atomic Buster, as described by Chuck in his book, actually comprised six scoops of ice cream, assorted fruit, sugar wafers, and whipped cream with hot fudge served on the side. That's what you need to know for Beatles trivia. <laughs> and can you imagine each of those skinny beetles eating all of that? Yeah, well, in those days, yeah. <laughs> and of course, another thing that you say is that Marge's Candies opened in 1921 and was originally called the Security Sweet Shop. And amongst its customers, inevitably in Chicago during that era, Al Capone. Al Capone. But I must ask the, our famous beetle historians that are interviewing me today. Do you think this actually happened? Personally, no. And I, okay. I'll go the other way and say, yeah, because it was late night. It, as I said, it was an era before cell phones. And there's no guarantee that someone would have a camera if they just came in unannounced. Would Margie Candies be open that late? Because let's figure it out. If they played an 8 p.m. show, that means they really didn't get on stage till about 9.30 to quarter to 10. They got off stage about 10, 15, 10, 20. They get back into the dressing room. They got to get out of their stage clothes. They got to get into a getaway vehicle and they got to leave. And it's probably about a 40 minute trip over there, I'm assuming. Right. So you're looking at about 11.30 to midnight. Yeah, well, this was a Saturday night, wasn't it? Yes. And I think, I don't know what the policy was back then, but I think Marge's Candies now is open till about 2 in the morning. Okay, so that's, that's a possibility. There's also another story of them eating. Now, there's a famous restaurant on the West Coast called Bob's Big Boy. Yeah, I know that. Yeah, and there's a famous story of them when they played at the Hollywood Bowl and they were staying in the, in the mansion there on uh, St. Pierre uh, Road that they also ate at uh, Bob's Big Boy in Burbank. And they actually have a booth dedicated to them. It has a plaque, everything, okay? And my research tells me that they never, never were there. Hmm. <laughs> Well, so at Margie's Candies, they've got a booth dedicated to it. They've got the whole thing dedicated to everything. But I've never seen any type of evidence that it happened. I'm really hoping when Mark Lewison brings out Tune In Number 2 that maybe he has the, I don't know, an ice cream dripping on the page or something. I don't know. <laughs> but something Interview to Interview another customer you, you, who was there. 
you know Mark. He'll suss it out. He'll find somebody that was at Margie's Candy that night. Knowing Mark, mm. he's found them, I'm sure. And I can't wait to read that book. So now, 1966, why were there two press conferences? After the statement was made that, uh, by John Lennon that uh, the Beatles were more popular than Jesus Christ and that you know, Christianity will go, it will shrink, all that, uh, created quite a firestorm. And uh, when it hit the press uh, in uh, America, it was only really about a week before the tour started. Uh, and Brian Epstein was so concerned about it that he flew into New York to give a press conference to not only, one, apologize to John, but there was also talk about him canceling the entire tour. And uh, so he was prepared to give all the deposits back to the promoters and just completely forget about the tour, but he... Um, decided to go ahead and do it. The promoters gave him assurances that everything would be fine. So when the Beatles came back to America, they knew that they had to give this, John had to give this formal press conference. And so they invited the three uh, national TV stations to, to be there to record this press conference. And that's when John had to do the famous apology and all of that. I just happened to be talking to a friend. I used the word Beatles as a remote thing, not as what I think, as Beatles as those, those other Beatles like other people see us. I just said they are, are having more, in, more influence on kids and things than anything else, including Jesus. But I said it in that way, which is the wrong way. Yep, well, yeah. well, some teenagers have said, uh, have repeated your statements that the Beatles, I like the Beatles more than Jesus Christ. What do you think about that? Well, originally I was, I was pointed out that fact in reference to England, that we meant more to kids than Jesus did, or religion at that time. I wasn't knocking it or putting it down, I was just saying it as a fact. And it sort of, it is true, especially more for England than here. You know, you I'm not saying that we're better or greater or comparing us with Jesus Christ as a person or God as a thing or whatever it is. You know, I just said what I said and it was wrong or was taken wrong and now it's all this. Are you so sorry you said it? I am, yes, you know, even though it's, it's not, I never meant what people think I meant by it. I'm still sorry I opened my mouth. That the Beatles are more popular than Christ? Uh, when I was talking about it, it was very close and intimate with this person that I know who happens to be a reporter. And I was using expressions on things that I just read and derived from, about Christianity. Only I was saying it in the simplest form that I know which is the natural way I talk, They're po more popular than Jesus and so and so and so and so. But she took them, and people that know me took them exactly as it was, because they know that's how I talk, you know. You're so taking them too literally, yeah. Once that was over, they went to another part of the hotel. So that first, first interview was in Tony Barrow's suite on the 27th floor. Right. Uh, they went in then to another part of the hotel where they gave a press conference to a more a kind of a friendly, somewhat friendly, supposed friendly press conference. That's how it started. But again, the same questions were asked even by the supposed friendly journalists who were traveling with the Beatles and were trying to report good things. Uh, they also had their questions as well. So John had to face another barrage of questions. What's your reaction to the repercussions? Well, when I first heard it, I thought, it can't be true. It's just one of those things like uh, bad eggs in Adelaide and things. And then when I realized it was serious, I was worried stiff. You know, because I knew 
uh, sort of how it'd go on, and the more the things that that get said about it, and all those miserable-looking pictures of me looking like a cynic, and that, and they'd go on and on and on. It'd get out of hand, and I couldn't control it. You know, I can't answer for it when it gets that big, because it's nothing to do with me then. I think that from only from what my views are, from what I've read or observed of Christianity and what it was and what it has been or what it could be, it just seems to me to be shrinking. I'm not knocking it or saying it's bad. I'm just saying it, it seems to be shrinking and losing contact. And we all deplore the fact that it is, you know. That's you know, the main nothing point better seems to be replacing it, so we're not saying anything about that. You know, and if you say something that you think may vaguely, in a way, be helpful, you know, because, I mean, you know, if it is on the decline in any way, then to say it's on the decline must be helpful. It's really going on saying, you know? yes, it's all fine, and yeah, yeah, we're all Christians, and we're all doing this, and we're all not doing it. And, you know, there'll no, probably I just be a said, big resurgence of Christianity now. <laughs> I hope so. Might as well, yes. Mr. Women, are you all Christians? Well, we were brought up. I don't profess to be a practicing Christian, although I think Christ was what he was, and I, anybody who says anything great about him, I believe. But I'm not a practicing Christian like I was brought up to be. I don't have unchristian thoughts. I read something recently that you are Never worrying, about <laughs> <laughs> worrying about the Beatles being brought down. Certain people are interesting, interested in getting the Beatles over with. Uh, oh, I don't know. Reading. I think that's a bit of a one that's, you know, I don't really know about that story, honestly. There's no, be I've never said, there's no need to like pull us down. Yeah. I agree that if there was, if we were slipping, there's lots of people that clap hands, Daddy, come home. What kind but of people do you think would be interested? I don't know because they never show themselves until that time arises when it's ripe for them. Do you feel you are slipping? We don't feel they're slipping. Our music's better. Our sales might be less. So in our view, we're not slipping. You know. How many years do you think you can, you can go on? Have you thought about that? It doesn't matter, you know. The thing is... You know, we just, just try and go forward. And the thing is, if we do slip, it doesn't matter, you know, I mean, so what, you know, we slip. And so we're not popular anymore, so we'll it's be all sun popular, won't we? You know, we'll be like we, we were control, maybe. And we can't invent a new gimmick to keep us going like people imagine we do. Did you say that Britain was becoming a police state? Oh, I'll tell you, we've really been putting our feet in it lately. <laughs> you can't say anything, you know, without it turning into the worst quote ever. Oh. I mean, somebody just in passing saying it to a friend, you see. That's what, we forget we're Beatles sometimes. You can't help it. We're still us inside. And if you say something like that, I didn't say it, it was one other. But when you say something like, Britain's becoming a police state, you say it exactly the same as anybody in a pub saying it to their friend across the bar. About some sweeping statement, which anyway, they can't back up anyway. And it's obvious it's not to be taken literally, because if it was, then you wouldn't be allowed to say that, would you? Apparently he broke down in, in their suite, didn't he, before the press conference? Yeah, according to Tony Barrow, if you read his book, you know, John was pretty distraught by the whole thing and uh, was really shaken by it. Um, he had never meant, meant it to uh, really be what it was supposed to be. And I'll be interested to, to read Mark Lewison's take on it. This, is, this to me, is kind of like the Pete Best firing, you know? Like, mm. you know, how is he going to handle the whole, uh, you know, um, 
Jesus' comments and how it was handled and how John felt about it. Because if you look at the press conferences that were later on in the tour, especially Memphis, if you look at that conference, you see a lot more confident John Lennon. You see a lot more, I don't really care what the press think, and I'm going to say what I'm going to say. Chicago was very contrite, very, you know, um, you can see him, he's, he's very nervous, he's talking very nervously, he's talking very fast, uh, under obviously a great amount of pressure. But if you see him at a press conference in Memphis, it was just about a week later, he is a totally different person. I mean, he's just calm, collected, he doesn't really care about what the press think about what his comments were. By the time he gets to the end of the tour, he's angry. I mean, if you look at the New York and Los Angeles press conferences, he's he's actually in a bad mood. Well, I've said as much as I can say about that. You know, he's very curt in his answers. Exactly. I mean, that first Chicago press conference, I, I also like to look at the other three Beatles, and you just see their faces. It's like, you know, the guilt's worn off the gingerbread at this point, and uh, this isn't fun anymore. And this is and this is exactly. this is the opening before the opening date of the tour. Yeah, and I, I think it's worse with Paul of all. I mean, he's just so, seems so, like, concerned and embarrassed by the whole thing. Yeah. Like, the image is kind of slowly wearing off, you know? Yeah, and you look at, you look at George and Ringo, and they're so sullen-looking in between questions. Right. Yeah, but but George, uh, I mean, he nearly exact he nearly makes things worse. He goes, you know, everybody knows Christianity's shrinking. Everybody knows about that. Uh, Paul seems a little bit surlier. Uh, I mean, he's kind of apologetic in Chicago in many ways, but he gets more surly as the as the tour goes on. It always struck me uh, that they picked on Lennon. The same magazine, the same date book, uh, has some very unflattering out-of-context McCartney stuff as well, where he's dropping the N-word around. Exactly, which, yeah. You I know, mean, how... you never, no one says anything about that. No, and it, it it's kind of like they were gunning for Lennon, but it always uh, struck me in retrospect, I should say it always struck me, it struck me in retrospect that, my God, does he realize the bullet that he dodged, you know? Mm. Yeah, and I think Paul really tried to hold it together because even before the start, tour started when they were still in London, you know, I... I think a reporter came up to him and said, well, you know, how's this tour going to go? I mean, I heard, you know, it's probably not going to be that great. And Paul said something like, it's going to be great. You watch. Right. You know, yeah. When there was obviously pressure mounting, you know, even then. Yeah, I think George, you know, as you said, Eric, he almost makes it worse at that Chicago press conference. But I think it's very much a case of, you know, resentment, you know, over this being blown up and he's getting in people's faces here. Yeah, George, it's, it's really... Uh, the most fascinating thing is to contrast, say, the uh, the JFK press conference in February of 64 with any of them from 1966, where the anger level goes up and up and up and up. And uh, in Toronto, especially, uh, George is a little hot under the collar. So it's it's you can really kind of gauge how sick they are of being on the road or at least being on the road under those conditions uh, by the press conferences. So now, why the decision to, first of all, open the tour in Chicago? And secondly, why return to the International Amphitheater? Yeah, so if you look at the 66 tour itinerary, uh, most of the shows kind of happened in the, in the east, kind of the east, eastern seaboard, kind of central states up in that area. 
with just a few shows. You had the show down in Memphis, obviously, and then the rest on the West Coast. There wasn't really anything in the in the middle part. And uh, why they why they did there, I have no idea. I mean, they landed in Boston first. They could have done a show in Boston. They did it obviously later at Suffolk Downs. Uh, but I think you know Chicago is just a good starting point, and that's that's kind of where they. They started, you know, John Lennon used to say, hey, we don't plan the tours. We just kind of get in the van and they tell us where to go and we're there. Now, wh why return to the amphitheater? That's a good question. Um, actually, they were going to do two shows at the Cow Palace to end the 1966 tour. and uh, In San Francisco. Last, in San Francisco. And... Uh, they actually, uh, Tony Barrow and Brian got together and, and uh, they said, well, why don't we just, we were offered Candlestick Park, why don't we just do the one show and we're done. So they were, you know, considering, obviously in 66, you know, venues and things like that. And they said, ah, well, hey, we've been, we did the amphitheater before, we only did one show, we could add another show. Again, you know, once 65 and 66 happened, they're not, just playing stadiums, you know, even on the 66 tour, they're still playing coliseums and arenas, but they're going to do two shows. And the, um, the cool thing about the, the shows at the, at the uh, International Amphitheater is that is the physically closest anybody on the 66 tour got to the Beatles. They had the closest seats. Um, um, I've got some photographs, which have never been seen before, which are in the video, and those were taken... Without a telephoto lens, I understand. Uh, the, there was a photographer right down, you know, amateur photographer right down front. And, uh, you know, that was kind of unusual considering all the controversy that had been going on with the, the Jesus Christ, uh, you know, statement. Yeah, the amphitheater was, I mean, think about it. I mean, this is the last time you're ever going to see the Beatles on tour, and they're in this very intimate venue. One of my good friends who we see at the fest all the time, Jeff Augsburger, actually went to that show. He went to the afternoon show, I believe. And um, I've got some great pictures of the book, uh, close-ups. I mean, you can see everything, what they're wearing, and, you know, the, the guitars really well, and Ringo's drums. I mean, just fantastic shots. And so we're just, we're just lucky that, that they chose that venue. I mean, they could have went back to White Sox Park, but the White Sox were in town. It's Stuart Summertime Sound, Beatle Concert Countdown, which continues live and direct from the International Amphitheater which is already filling up with Beatle fans for the first of the two concerts today. A Beatle concert is sound. An interesting story about that sound, a direct interview from the floor after this. Nice, right up here, Williamson has his lily pad hanging high over the amphitheater, and I'm looking down at the floor right now. One of my fellow VIPs is down there. I won't tell you his name, but he's checking everybody for peanut butter as they come into the door. Let's see what's going on, Barney. Okay, thanks, Dick. And uh, hello, people. Uh, this is a great day, I'll tell you. Listen, can I have your name? No. Oh, come on. Let me... No. What's I your name? Judy Barlow. Judy, and where do you go to school? Oh, hey, that's great. And do you have seats around in here yes, someplace? Second row. Second row. When did you send in for tickets for those? <laughs> you sent for them? It just so happened that you got second row tickets, huh? Well, that's great. And is this the first show that you've seen? No. 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 Third for you, huh? Second for you, and the first. and the first for you. So you're all anticipating different things, and uh, uh, you think it's going to be as great as the uh, as the other ones? Yeah, better. 
Okay. Listen, thanks a lot, gals, very much for talking to me. Now back to Dick Williamson. Okay, Barney, and you're checking for those peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Right here at the International Amphitheater, Beetle Concert Countdown continues. We have just about an hour and 35 minutes till the first show. Those are the remains of Little Diddy Wah Diddy right here in Williamson's World at the International Amphitheater looking down on the stage to Howie Roberts and Carol Simpson with another report. This is a new experience for me, but here is an old hand at Beatles, and I do mean Carol Simpson. You were at last year's, weren't you, Bean? I certainly was, and uh, I can say it's pretty much the same thing. Uh, the anxiety, the electrifying uh, experience looks like it's going to be another big one. Yeah, well, you know Carol last year's was held out at White Sox Park. There was no roof on that. The sound had a chance to dissipate. I What's know. going to happen this afternoon, Carol? I'm terrified I should have brought my earplugs. <laughs> Howie, one thing I wanted to mention, I just noticed four girls walked by that had on shifts, and of all things, they were made out of the pattern of the British flag. And I think the British influence on fashion is very evident here. There are the mini skirts, the bell-bottom trousers, and the bright mod colors, splashes of colors. Of course, the hair on both boys and girls is long and straight. Yeah, you do have trouble uh, telling them apart, don't you? Yeah, you do. You certainly do. What else, Carol, can you draw as a comparison between this year's Beatles 1966 and 1965? Well, Howie, the main difference I see is that the uh, arena is filling up slower than it seemed to uh, back in 1965 in Comiskey Park. Looks like the crowd's taking a little longer to fill the place. Well, I'll tell you something, Carol. There are an awful lot of seats that you aren't aware of that are being filled directly behind you, for example, and all the way around. There are some 13,000 seats for this performance this afternoon and this evening. Well, Carol, I'll tell you, we're going to be set for a lot of noise, a lot of good sounds, a lot of good music for Beatles 1966. And now, back up to Dick Williamson. All right, thank you, Howie, and we're right back up here, high above the International Amphitheater, taking it up to news time, a little wade in the water here with Ramsey Lewis. Here's an Andy Frayne Usher here with me. How does the crowd look to you yet? It's pretty wild. All right, do you have any fears about uh, what may happen? I just hope they don't they have a rush for the stage. <laughs> first time you've covered a Beatle concert? Yes. It is? Are you looking forward to it? Yes. Why do you think it would be a fine thing? A what? Why do you think it would be exciting? Well, all the crowd and people yelling, you know, the band's playing. Are you a Beatle fan yourself? No. Why not? I don't care for the Beatles, really. Okay, fine. Carol Simpson backstage at the amphitheater. Well, I got my lily pad hung way up over the amphitheater, and right alongside of me is a fellow who's seen one or two Beatles shows. What, the, this is your first, fourth tour, isn't it, Jim? No, this is uh, the third tour. Uh, they, this is the Beatles' fourth invasion of America. Of course, the uh, first time was to do the Sullivan Show and then a concert in Washington and then on down to Miami just for a little rest and relaxation. Uh, but this third American Beatle tour looks like it's going to be a fantastic one. I was talking to Tony Barrow earlier today. He said this year, out of the 14 cities that they'll be playing, they'll be... Uh, playing to well over uh, a million people this time around because many of the shows are, are pretty equivalent to uh, the 52,000 that uh, they'll have at Shea Stadium once again, from what I'm told. Here at the International Amphitheater, we can notice a few changes and differences. I was going to ask you about that. Um, in connection with the, the last shows that have been in Chicago, I'd say that the house is about... 
not more than 40% full at this time. And I think that's a pretty good estimate. There are a lot of empty seats. Uh, could be the fact that all seats are reserved, however, so there's not the, the imperative motive that they get here, you know, so far ahead of showtime. But being only about, uh, oh, what is it, 20 minutes away? Well, about 45, act, I think. You, you think that more of them would be in their seats at this time. You know, one thing I noticed, Jim, was that uh, here in the amphitheater, we have many, many seats that are very, very close to the stage. Now, have you seen this in other Beatles? concerts? Never, never have I ever seen it uh, li quite like this because all of the theaters usually have, oh, maybe a, a 15 or a 20-foot uh, expansion between stage and the first row of seats, and they also have a ring of ushers that uh, go from one side of the auditorium to the other. Now, I don't know if later on we'll see more ushers move in across the front of the uh, stage and, and be able to keep people back, but it's awfully inviting, I'd say, for the first 10 rows of people down there to... Uh, have an opportunity to, to rush that stage. Could and get interesting. It, it will be interesting to see if they try, because uh, if they don't try, then there's a, a whole new thing for Beatlemania. It all of a sudden takes a different complexion than what we've described and seen before about these guys. Okay, Jim, I'll tell you what, we'll all be looking forward and we'll come back a little bit later and talk and find out just what did happen. Beatle Concert Countdown continues. It's fun to play. Howie Roberts with one of the security guards. Howie? We're in a position that about 13,000 screaming teenagers would be proud to be in. We're backstage at the International Amphitheater at Secret Entrance X, because this is where the Beatles are going to enter the amphitheater in just moments, I'm sure. A gentleman with a pair of wire cutters in his hand because the door has been wired shut to keep others out. His name is? Dennis Walsh. Who entrusted you to this important task? Burns Detective Agency. Fine. Have you been at the Beatles concerts before, Dennis? Uh, yes, I have, sir. How many have you worked at? Two. What do you think is going to happen when the Beatles go on stage? Pandemonium. Are you a good steady hand with wire cutters? Expert. How many do you think know about Secret Entrance X? None, I hope. None you hope. So there you have the situation. We're backstage. The Beatles are going to arrive at the International Amphitheater in a very short time. And now back to Dick Williams. Thank you, Howie. Downstairs with Howie Roberts and Frank Freed. Howie? This is the man that Chicago has to thank for this afternoon with the Beatles in town from Triangle Productions, Mr. Frank Freed. Frank, how does it look? Well, it looks very great. Uh, the uh, audience is assembling. There's about 11,000 out of about 13,000, and they're still streaming in. The main floor is completely filled. I can say that for Frank, and the, and the balcony is rapidly filling. Filling up, so by the time the show starts, I don't imagine there'll be a seat left. It's been a very orderly uneventful but fun afternoon so far and it's going to continue that way i'm sure fun is what these kids are here for good clean fun frank tell us how long does it take to get a production like this on the road well the beatles were working on it from england since last february and we started last march there's a tremendous amount of organization and coordination that has to take place so that uh, everything from the production end and making sure the sound is right to the tickets being sold. And they were, and things are great. Frank Freed from Triangle Productions, the man Chicago thanks for bringing the Beatles. Howie Roberts, and now back to Dick Williamson. All right, Howie, thank you very much. You know, ladies sometimes need to borrow extra cash, too.
standing by for Jim Runyon, live from the International Amphitheater. Good afternoon. Our giant clock at Beatle Concert Countdown has reached zero. Showtime is just seconds away. From our booth 70 feet from the floor and directly above the stage, we see a capacity crowd anxiously awaiting the arrival of the Master of Ceremonies to introduce the first act on the bill this afternoon, the first of the two concerts. The Remains will be the first act to be introduced. Joel Sebastian is on the stage now and approaching center microphone. We'll go down to the microphone, Joel Sebastian and the opening of this Beatle concert. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Sounds like we have some Beatles fans out there. On behalf of Triangle Productions, welcome to the first stop of the 1966 tour of the most fantastic guys in the world, the Beatles! I want to remind you to please stay in your seats. Do not crowd the bandstand. It is a fire department ruling on that. And today I had the pleasure on my program of having most of the performers that you will see this afternoon. The first group of guys are four young fellas from Boston who already have a hit over there. I know you're going to dig them because they already dig you. They said so when they were talking to you on the action line. So a nice big welcome from the greatest city in the world, Chicago. To the remains, let's hear it now! And the first of today's two Beatle concerts, the first of this series of Beatle concerts in America is underway. The first act of remains coming on stage now, a capacity crowd. The other acts for today and tonight, the Ronettes, the Circle, Bobby Hebb, and the Beatles. Now from International Amphitheater, as the remains begin the first concert, Here's the number one sound around our town, the Love and Spoonful in Summer in the City. The first show also had that famous malfunction. When you're on the road, there's no allowance for mistakes. You've got to do it right the first time. I remember the first time we opened the Chicago one tour. As an example of something that can go wrong, you know, from my point of view as a road manager. There was a balcony that went around either side of the uh, stage. And uh, when all the other groups were on stage that preceded them, everything was going beautifully, you know? Because everybody was backstage trying to see the Beatles. Now, when the Beatles went on stage, everybody crowded into the balcony. And suddenly, the Beatle amps were going off, one after the other, the Beatle amps were going off. We couldn't find a cause. I changed amplifiers, like I was going crazy. The main power supply was coming to the stage along the balcony. and. Whenever the crowd in the balcony got excited and stamped their feet, they disconnect the power to the stage. As Lennon said, and nobody seemed to notice. Yeah, and George thought it was sabotage because of the whole Jesus statement that they were getting him back. Right. <laughs> of course, as a Cubs fan, I think it's sacrilege that they played at Sox Park altogether. Yeah, but do you think the Wrigley's, uh, the, the people that own Wrigley Field, would have ever allowed a rock concert to happen there? 
No, well, I suppose as being a baseball shrine, they wouldn't do that. Probably not. I mean, I was surprised when McCartney was allowed to play. Yeah. Or some of the major acts today, but the the, the, the owners that, that 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 were in charge of White Sox Park, they were much more promotion oriented. They were much more trying to get anything that would come to town to come to White Sox Park yeah. because of bring them in revenue. Whereas Wrigley is Wrigley's much more like you said, it's a baseball shrine. I mean, who's gonna who's gonna like? They don't want the ivy to be ripped out by you know hysteric hyster, you know hysterical fans and things like well, that. Well, I, I don't think baseball was ever played at White Sox Park. You see, yeah, <laughs> true. Yeah. Now there's a little bit of controversy over where the Beatles actually stayed in Chicago in '66, isn't there? Yeah, there is. Um, we do know that they were at the Astor Towers Hotel because we see them getting dropped off, and obviously they had two press conferences there. Um, the Astor Towers is now a condominium project, but it was a really nice hotel back then, designed by the, the guy that did the uh, Marina Towers, which is a very famous landmark on in Chicago's waterfront. Yeah, and interestingly, whereas in 65 they're kind of you know off the beaten track in Schiller Park, here, they're in Chicago's Gold Coast, which is like the best neighborhood in Chicago. Exactly. And uh, and a little bit closer to um, the International Amphitheater. What, it would have been maybe a 10, 15-minute drive over there? Right. Yeah. So um, we have some... I When I was doing the research on that show, um, I got some vibes that from people that somehow after the press conferences they were spirited away uh, to another hotel um, near Grant Park. Right. And uh, I had actually had a few people say that, a couple DJs that I interviewed, and it sounded good, but I just don't see it happening. I have a picture of it in the book yeah. uh, of the hotel that they were supposedly spirited away. There was a couple stories like that that I ran into through the years uh, researching this book. One was of George in Baltimore being spirited away to another hotel because he was sick and they didn't want to, you know, have, uh, he was just needed some rest and time, time alone. And then there was this visit to this elementary school that he did. There's still a plaque there, this water fountain he drank from. There's so many little stories out there that 50 years plus on, we still don't know the true story. It's so crazy because we didn't live in a social media age. If it had the Beatles toured in the social media age, we would have known everything, every, every place they walked, every word they spoke. Um, but we're still trying to suss this stuff out 50 years on. It's crazy. Yeah, because actually it was the Ascot Motel. Now, wasn't it, you said, was it Bruce Johnson who helped clear that up? Yeah. Um, so I was listening to a Breakfast with the Beatles one time, Dennis Mitchell's podcast, and he had Johnston on. He said, I'm going to, I'd never heard this story before, and it was perfect because I was researching the book then. He said, well, I'll tell you an interesting story because we had met the Beatles when they were in Chicago at their hotel. And I'm like, oh, wow, my ears are to the ground. What happened here, you know? And I'm trying to figure this out. Okay, is this a real story? Is it not? And as I started putting the pieces together, it sounded like a real story because the, the Beach Boys were on tour in 66 uh, at that same time, at that same month. And that very uh, day before, they had played, I believe, in Fargo, North 
Dakota. Mm -hmm. And then the next day, they were going to play at the Illinois State Fair, which is located in Springfield, Illinois, which is about a three-hour drive from Chicago. So they were there in that area. And uh, Bruce and uh, was it uh, Mike Love that came by? Yes. Yeah, Bruce Johnston, Mike Love, uh, came by the hotel, which was the Astor Towers. It was in the morning. It was the day that they were leaving to go do the next show. And um, they were in an area of the hotel, and, and Bruce said, look, we're working on this new song, and love for to play it to you and to, to, to tell you kind of where Brian Wilson is heading and heading with this song, and the song was Good Vibration. So... That was kind of uh, orchestrated in front of the Beatles during that 1966 tour in Chicago. Interestingly, Chuck, in the book, you say that, you know, the Beatles played a total of five shows in Chicago over the course of three years. They performed for roughly 100,000 Chicagoans. And in 66 alone, their take was over $135,000, which that sounds like, what, about four times what they took in 64. Yeah, so when uh, they came back in 66, I mean, the minimum guarantee you could have got them for was $50,000, and that's just the guarantee. Right. So then you're also talking about gate receipts between 60 and 70%. Um, and then some venues, they even got more uh, of a guarantee. I think in St. Louis, they got a $75,000 guarantee. Um, and actually, you know, because of the comments and things like that that were made and the promoters were really disappointed and you know kind of what was going to happen if they were going to be able to fill those seats because remember they're putting out huge guarantees they've they've got a lot of pressure on them to fill seats so that was uh the year where actually a few posters were even printed uh they never used to have to print posters when the beatles came to town but there was a few cities that did print posters to attract fans st louis being one of them mm. and uh, it's not a lot of them but that <laughs> you know they had to they had to do more marketing than they'd ever done before uh, to fill seats and and actually Brian felt a little guilty and he refunded some of the money to the St. Louis promoter because of the poor turnout. Right now, of course, you know we've made the show you know Chicago centric. From the Beatles' perspective, it was just another city, wasn't it? I mean, even in the '66 press conference, I think wasn't it George who made it clear that he didn't even recall having stayed in Chicago before. <laughs> exactly. And if you watch Anthology, he talks about the second trip to New York Shea Stadium. He said, I don't ever remember playing there twice. Right. I just think, you know, number one, they're unfamiliar with the states. You have, a lot of times people think like the Beatles were here all the time during those tours. Mm. But if you add up all three tours and the first visit, the four Beatles, just themselves, the four of them together, were only on North American soil for a total of 90 days. So you don't know a lot about, you know, states and cities and all these places you're going and remembering all these things. I just think they just basically did what Brian wanted to do. I mean, I think Brian, you know, pretty much kicked him out the door to even go on the 65 tour. I think they were done by then. Yeah. Um, uh, definitely for '66, it was like this is it. I mean, this you know we're not we're not going to do this again. Yeah. Another interesting thing is one of the pictures in the book that shows them on stage playing, and if you look behind, there's 
nobody in the seats. So right. a lot of people think that the Beatles did sound checks. And as we know, they never did a sound check. They came on, the instruments were there, they plugged in, and away they went. But a lot of people think to, to this day that they did sound checks just like a, a band does today. Right. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks very much for being on. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. So while we're telling our listeners to subscribe to Swinging Through the 60s on iTunes, we also, once again say go out if you haven't got it you won't regret investing in some fun tonight the backstage story of how the beatles rocked america the historic tours of 1964 to 1966 by our special guest chuck gunderson
The Beatles, Naked. Post-production by Richard Buskin. Theme music by Craig Bartok. press conference, the Beatles gave their first performance of the 1966 American tour. Afterwards, Jerry Layton, a disc jockey from Radio Caroline in England, and I were sitting with the Beatles carrying on an informal conversation. This is part of that conversation with Paul McCartney. Paul, oh, I'd like to ask you, um, when you're with your music and your lyrics, uh, do you write the lyrics or do you write the music? Is John is the other way around with John? No, with the, with the songs that we write, we both write lyrics and music. And it depends, you know, like with uh, some songs I write lyrics and music, and so does John with some other songs. On some, we just get together and just do a line each, you know, words and music each. Depends, you know, how it happens and what kind of mood we're in. It's normally no formula about it, though. How did you feel about your performance out there today? I think it's answered all enjoyed questions, it. don't you? I enjoyed it, you know, it was quite good. The thing was that the amps uh, broke down, you know, in one of the numbers, because uh, there was some business with the, one of the wires broke or something, so which was a bit of a drag, you know, but uh, nobody seemed to notice. <laughs> Do you think that the uh, this God thing is quashed forever now? Well, it should be, you know. I mean, the amount of time we've spent on it, and the, you know, we, I don't know, all last night, trying to explain to everyone about it. So we didn't really mean it like that, you know. And I think, uh, you know, from what I've seen of the people who've heard what we had to say about it, they, they seem to think it's okay now, you know. It should be, you know, because I mean, I didn't think it was ever unokay. <laughs> About the uh, Revolver album, the, the Indian sounds that you're getting on it, yeah. who is mainly responsible for this side of the... The Indian, the Indian yeah, sounds are uh, George. Yeah. George has been studying. De definitely mainly George, because uh, we started off, you know, just hearing Indian music and sort of listening to things, and we liked the drone idea, because we'd done a bit of that kind of thing in songs before, you know. But George got very interested in it and went to a couple of Ravi Shankar concerts and then he sort of met Ravi and sort of was knocked out by him and thought, like, just as a person, he's, a, he's an incredible fellow, you know, he's, he's one of the greatest. And uh, he thought he didn't know that George was serious about it. And so when he found out George was serious, he was knocked out too. So the two of them are having a great time. <laughs> and, you know, that's how we've got Indian sounds on at the moment. Because the thing is, anyway, it's nice to sort of start bridging the two kinds of music. You know, because we, we just started off in a very simple way. And then this album's got a bit better. I mean, it's a little bit more like Indian music. And it helps people to understand it, too, because it's very, it's very hard at first to understand, yeah. But once you get into it, it's the greatest. Who decided on this uh, Tomorrow Never Knows Weird Effects? Weird Effects. Uh, well, see, we wrote the song, and it was a very funny start song from the start because John came up with the lyrics to it. And he'd just been reading Tibetan Book of the Dead. And he, want, he was dead impressed by it, you know, very impressed. <laughs> and uh, he decided that he'd um, 
write the song and we only had one verse and i think we stretched it to sort of two verses and we couldn't think of any more words because we sort of said it all what we wanted to say in about two verses so we had to try and work out how to sort of do it now to make it different so I decided to do some of those those loops that I'd been doing on my home tape recorder. And they're just tape loops. And I'd been making them. So I just took along a, 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 a bag full of six tape loops to the session. And we just tried them and mixed them in and brought them in in those places. And so, uh, so I suppose it was sort of vaguely my idea, that bit of it. Do you find opposition from people who want you to play to the teenagers? Yeah, well, the thing is, you see, uh, We've kept quite a few songs on the album. I mean, if we just suddenly did exactly what we'd want to do. Um, in fact, I think actually at the moment that is what we want to do, what we did, what we've done on Revolver. But if we did like all the way out things, I mean, I suppose people think they're way out. I don't actually, but that, that kind of thing. If we did all, a whole album of them, then uh, we'd be doing what like the people who do electronic music do. They go too far out too suddenly and no one stays with them. Everyone else is left behind because they're miles out ahead, sort of digging all this electronic stuff. But in fact, what we've tried to do is like do the last album, Rubber Soul, a bit more towards that, then this one a bit more, and the next one should be a bit more. And if people stay with us, you know, it's great. Lovely. Who, de who decided the two tracks to go as a single from it? From the LP? Yeah. Um, I think we all did, you know. I think it was a case of... We knew that when the album came out, there would be uh, quite a few people going to cover it, so we thought we might as well have the hit, you know. <laughs> I think the will be another uh, Yesterday. I don't know, I don't think you actually, the only thing that's similar to Yesterday is the fact that like, there's uh, violins and string instruments on it. Apart from that, I think it's nothing to do with it, yeah. Completely different kind of tune. I think it's uh, better in a way, but I sang yesterday better. I sang Eleanor Rick terrible. <laughs> wow. Sorry, but no, it's, oh. you listen to it, you know, and it's... Uh, I've listened We've to it. Well. Well. Okay. Actually, then, for what you, uh, your music now is improving every time, and you're making the lyrics uh, more interesting also, aren't you? Well, see, that's the thing. I mean, if we stayed where we were in, say, 1960, when we were doing Love Me Do, and then Please Please Me, and From Me To You, which was one kind of thing, you know, it was a kind of thing people liked. The thing is, if we did that now, I think um, our fans, the, the kind of fans that we got now, wouldn't like that too much, because it would be going back, and it would be retracing your steps, you know. And also, from our point of view, we're never going to do that. Because, I mean, if we ever have to do that, if anyone suddenly says, you're going too way out, you've got to get back to then, but we'll give up, you know. That was part of my first day's conversation with Paul McCartney. Next, I moved over to Ringo. Most people think that Ringo is a sad-looking fellow who never smiles. But actually, Ringo has quite a sense of humor. He seems to be one big-hearted, happy fellow. As I moved over to Ringo, I had in my hand a list of questions which my listeners in Kentucky Hannah had sent for me to ask the Beatles. Ringo saw my sheet of paper, 
and jokingly said... There's another cheat, folks. Reads it out of paper. Got no brain. <laughs> Not quite, Ringo. Well, actually, this is a lot of questions here from Beatle fans, but of course, I only going to ask you a couple well, right now. The first question you needn't ask me, how many songs have you and John written? That's not really for me, is it? No, no, Ringo, no, I'll tell you. I'd like to ask you, though, uh, when's your next Beatle movie coming up? Uh, well, with any luck, we may start making it in um, January. We, we've got a story, uh, an idea, and it's there's a bloke now trying to write a script, but we haven't seen the script. We just hope the script's as good as the idea, which will remain nameless. <laughs> um, how did you uh, like making the movie Help? Which did you prefer, the first one, um, night or, or Help? Did you enjoy most? I enjoyed making them both, but I enjoyed what, uh, Hard Day's Night when it was finished more. Uh, I don't know, I sort of got lost in Help a bit, you know. Yes, you did in the film, didn't you? Yes. <laughs> um, well, you can see one uh, question here. You always hear about Ringo's nose, but does anyone ever tease Paul about his innocent little boy face? Um, no, you get a few people saying cute and that, you know. Well, I mean, it's been quite nice the last couple of years. No one's mentioned my nose. How, how, do, you, how do you feel that um, you? you're married and being away from your wife on these tours? Um, well, it's something I have to do, and, you know, we sorted that out before we got married, you know, that there's no argument when I, you know, I have to go away because that's the job, you know, and so it's sorted out. There's never any problems. You know, I like being, you know, I, I can't say I'd rather be at home. But, which I would in one way, but, you know, it's a hard thing to say that you, you you like being away from your wife, but I don't like being away from it. It's just that we've sorted her out the tour in, we split up for a while, you know. Um, how do you uh, think of the reaction of the teenagers here today at your show? Uh, very don't you good. Very, they were terrific. Yeah. I think they were fabulous. But um, yourself, uh, don't you think uh, whatever the press might have to say or had to say in the past, yeah. the attitude's completely changed if anyone was to see you here today? Oh, yeah. Well, it, um, in some ways, it doesn't matter what the press say because, you know, the kids still will be the same at the show, you know. So that's the thing. But the thing is, if, if there's a lot of trouble in the press for months on end, then, you know, it can harm you. Well, actually, um, I'd like to wish you all the very best. And I'd you like to wish one. you the best and, of luck. Uh, you and your tie. Everything. Thank you. <laughs> and I hope you go on having success and happiness. Really uh, thanks a lot. <laughs> Thank you. Now, let's get better acquainted with John Lennon. We've jolly well looked into his private thoughts. Now, let's talk to him about being a Beatle. John, um, I hear you going to uh, go into a movie very soon, I think after your tour. Yeah. Uh, what is this job about? Can you give me the story on that? Well, the, the, all I know about it is it's, it's about World War II and uh, it's, I think it's, it's not, it's not a broad comedy or anything, but it's, it's a comedy. That's all I know about, you know, it's about World War II, and I'm called Gripweed. Gripweed? Yeah. What's the name of it? Um, I think it's called How I Won the War, as far as I know. And what, what is actually, what part are you I'm just some, no, not really. I don't think it's sort of like gag lines so much, you know. Uh, it's just, I'm just some soldier, you know, from Batman to Michael Crawford. 
it's just nobody ever, you know, it's just about one of Dick Lester's films, and it's hard sort of trying to say what it's about, really, because he knows. But, um, yesterday I asked you during the press we were a question about your music and how it changed. What I was going to ask you now is that um, do you write most of the lyrics or do you write music or is it for? No, it's never like that, you know. It's, uh, if I've written a song with a, a verse, say, and I've had it for a couple of weeks and I just don't seem to be getting any more verses, well, I just say to Paul, jingling, jing, have you got any verses for this? And then we either both write and we say, yeah, we'll grab this or that. It's very haphazard, you know. There's no sort of rules for writing. Is there any particular song since you've been on the scene that you favour most of all? Uh, do you have a favourite or? Uh, I like here, there and everywhere and Yellow Submarine just to listen to it. You know. And uh, looking towards the future, do you think you'll be back here at the United States game next year? I, know, I don't think about the future as much as that, but I suppose we will, you know. We just seem to come back every August, as far as I can see. It's just sort of like the national trip, our annual trip. How do you feel about being away on these tours where being near your wife for so long? Well, the longest tour we ever do is three weeks, and it's usually the, in America we do the longest tours. And three weeks, you go, if you're busy, you know, it's all over before you know what's happened. You're back home. Well, thank you, John. I'll be talking with you again. Okay, to us. Now you've met Paul, Ringo, and John. Now let's talk with the fourth Beatle, the one who lives only a short distance from my home in Surrey, George Harrison. What do you think of this, the, the, your latest LP yourself? Uh, you know, a lot yeah. of people we've had yeah. big write-ups about it in our station, and they think it's fabulous, you know. Well, for us, um, we've always tried, you know, really all we're trying to do is to do something good, you know. And I mean, we spend a bit more time with this LP just to try and generally make it better. In other words, that you're but, um, trying to improve yourself. Yeah, naturally, because we've n I don't think anybody ever during their lives ever feels as though they've done it. You know, and we feel exactly the same about our records. We make a record and we may be knocked out with it when we just first do it. But then when we listen to it a few times and we hear uh, that it's not really as good as we think it is, and that's the thing that happened, you know, I mean, with Revolver, when we first did it, well, with lots of the tracks, we just really knocked out with them. But then, by the time the records issued, we're a bit fed up with it and are looking towards the new one, which is good. All right, George, well, I won't keep you playing anymore. It's just one more question I'd ask you. I believe in your latest LP, the Jabby is using the new instrument, the sitar, is this right? Well... I'm using the sitar, but it's not a new instrument. It's over 800 years old. Yeah, it's great. You know, it's just a thing I've uh, got interested in over the last year or so. Just got very interested in Indian music generally, and just I'm just trying to learn it now. And the more I learn, the more I'll try and use it in our music as well. Well, I think anyone that's interested in music, it makes them listen more so yeah. when something new has yeah. found its way. Yeah. It's the thing, I mean, by me using sitar, maybe some of our fans will listen to indie music. And uh, then maybe, you know, those people will get interested in it, which would be good. The more people should hear it, because it's so fantastic, 
you know, it's a pity that it's not very well known in the West. Uh, one more thing, though, I know you've got to get away from the next show. How did you feel about when you first started off and uh, you were, for instance, you were in Hamburg? How do you think on those days now? Oh, they were great and they were all, in fact, Hamburg days were probably one of the most important times of our lives because it was uh, like our apprenticeship. We worked so hard and we worked sort of eight hours a night, seven nights a week for four and a half months in the first go. And we really got a lot of rehearsing in. You know, we just got the group going a bit, so they're very important. Yeah, it was nice. It was nice. Well, thank you very much, George. Okay. I'm sure all your fans are going to appreciate these. Okay, thank you. Conversation. Bye. Thank you.